All right, well, uh, good evening. Welcome to the part where Revelation starts to get interesting, uh, where you have to start making decisions about interpretation where there is no point of return. Um, and so how we'll, how we'll break down tonight's uh, time is, uh, first, uh, how people have traditionally, I'm going to turn this down a little bit, how people have traditionally made decisions about some key interpretive decisions you have to make. Um, so we'll kind of go through the broad, like here's how you, you, people have read Revelation, and then we'll go Revelation 6 and 7, a little bit in depth of how, why I read it the way I read it, why I've made the choice, um, choices I've made. And to be clear, like the, the different ways of reading Revelation are all really good and make a lot of sense, but I don't have time to go in and de like defend each of those positions. I want to more speak out of the one that I um, I come from, and so if you have a different reading and you want to chime in with a thought or a question around that, go for it. Um, it's more, I'm not going to detail each position and its, its strengths. Um, I'm going to go through them, but just uh, stay pretty brief. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Uh, Father, thank you for your word that you've spoken to us, and that we do not have to wonder who you are, uh, what your posture towards us is, and that you want us to draw near to you. Uh, through faith in your son, Jesus. And so while we're, we're studying a pretty, pretty intense book tonight, we want to ultimately have faith in Jesus and live how he would call us to live. So help us in that, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I'll start with a couple of uh, my favorite quotes around Revelation. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was a British author um, <coughs> at the, basically the turn of the 19th century, or turn of the 20th century, early 1900s. Uh, and he wrote, uh, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Um, but you, there's just some interesting stuff in Revelation. I'll even give you one I encountered last week. Um, and then Martin Luther uh, said, some have uh, even brewed, this is a good German quote, some have even brewed Revelation into many stupid things out of their own heads. Um, so th this is this is interesting ground for interpretation because it's, it's just a hard book because, again, going back to tonight one, it's an apocalyptic book, it's a prophetic book, and it's a letter to the church. And all of those things are going to matter as we begin to interpret it. Um, so what I want to do is uh, start with, um, and this is this is on your handout on uh, on your page or on your, your table. Uh, there's a guy named Mar Michael Gorman. He wrote a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly, which is a great title. And he has a really, uh, I think, helpful uh, framework for how people make interpretive decisions about Revelation. He basically says there's, there's two poles, a vertical pole and a horizontal pole. Uh, the vertical pole is the timing decisions you have to make. Is Revelation primarily about the past? Is it primarily about the present? Is it primarily about the future? Um, so Revelation 1 through 5, there's not a ton of disagreement about what the broad scope of those chapters are. That all changes in chapter 6. Revelation 6 through 20 is where you have to make decisions about is this a primarily uh, content that's, that's actually referring back to the first century? Is it primarily content that is addressing the time you and I are living in now? Or is it time that's in the future? And I'll push into each of those in a second. But that's, I think that's a help, helpful framework. Uh, in particular, Revelation 6 through 20, is that the past? Did that already happen? Is what we're reading already happen? Uh, is it the present? Does it really speak into what we're experiencing now? Or is it future? Are these things describing what's yet to come? 
And the other two things he says uh, to think about in terms of interpretation is the horizontal axis, which is either the text as a code um, or the text as, as lens. And what he means by that is the decoding side of the, the poll is where you focus on the details and you look for correlations between the text and specific events and people, um, later events in, in, in people in church and history or in their own time. So again, you could, you could do that with the past and you could look at events. Uh, so for example, Revelation 11 talks about, or is, uh, what I'm preaching on Sunday, John is to measure the temple. So people who, who see primarily as a, uh, Revelation is primarily a past event, see that as a, a literal measuring of the temple, the first century temple before it was destroyed. So, you know, are, are, in other words, are these things we're reading, these symbols, things we have to decode that reveal like real correspondence to things like a one for one correspondence um, to things? And I'll give you more examples later. Um, or the other end of the spectrum is the text more as a lens, which is to convey the spirit of the text, discerning similarities to our own day, but not necessarily like precise correspondence. So an example would be like the seven churches in Revelation 2 through those are, are uh, real churches, real-time space history from the past, um, but they also speak to how the church is to, to live in the time between the first and the second coming of Christ. So in some sense, that's giving us a lens into what God, God wants from his church. It's not, as some people, well, this is my reading, some people said, well, that, that the seven are seven different churches throughout history, and the, the last church, Laodicea, that's the final church before Christ's return. So it's Right, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the church, uh, church one and church seven to church in history, whereas Texas Lens would more say, no, 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 no. It's just a broad letter to the church throughout all history um, out of which, which we read. So that, those polls are helpful. And then as we go into what are the five primary ways of re re reading Revelation, um, hopefully th like th those polls will start to come out. So that's the uh, Gorman's really helpful uh, past, present, future, or Texas code versus text as lens. And then he goes into five ways of, of reading Revelation, um, which I'm going to walk through briefly. The first is predictive. Uh, they read, re reading Revelation is a primarily predictive document. Um, and so they would see uh, the fulfillment of the tribulations of Revelation 6 through 20 as in their own time or in the very near, near future. Um, so this would be a lot of how the early church read Revelation. So Justin Martyr, um, Irenaeus, in the first commentary on Revelation, this is the way it's read. Uh, it was read by a guy named uh, Vic, uh, Vic, Victorinus. Um, and, and this is the, uh, if you're familiar um, with the Left Behind series, this is the way that the Left Behind series would read Revelation. It's primarily predictive, end times tribulation. So we read those texts looking for modern day fulfillment. Um, the symbols of Revelation are, are then connected with end-time events. So one example of that, in Revelation 9, uh, which is the text, we won't really go into that text in the sermon on Sunday. We'll do a little bit of it next week in this space. But in, in Revelation 9, there are locusts. And here's what we read about the locusts. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. So some people reading this Revelation as a predictive doc document read of 
of locusts whose wings sound like the rush of many chariots and say, that sounds like what a helicopter is. Um, and so the locusts in Revelation 9 are actually like, that's, that could be a helicopter, a helicopter going into war. Later on, this is actually what Hal Lindsey wrote in, in the late great planet um, Earth. And so this predictive element of what's in Revelation is predicting what's ahead, and we have to kind of decode what's predicted ahead. And, and until, you're in those, until you're in those days, you're not really going to understand what Revelation is saying because it's, those are predictive of future events. It's the first way of reading Revelation, which is primarily Revelation 6 through 20 is all future. Um, the seals that, were, that we, we talked about last Sunday, that has not happened yet. That's still in the future. The second way of reading Revelation is, is, is called the preterist view, uh, which just means it's exclusively focused on the past. And this was the, this was the dominant view of the church for much of the early uh, much of early church history, which, which isn't surprising because they would have, like, I think anyone should read Revelation and see some of our own time in the book. And they saw that as, the, as, as in the book. And because the broad assumption of the early church was Christ would return soon, they saw a lot of what was happening um, in, in their own day as being fulfilled in, uh, in the first century. So Revelation 6 through 19, then, that happens all just after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and primarily um, in AD 70, the temple uh, was destroyed by Rome. And that's, that was a, a huge event for Israel because everything for Israel's worship was based out of the temple. Um, so for Christians especially, to have had Jesus come, teach, live, die, be buried, and raised from the dead, and then to have the temple go away, like there's no way as a Christian you couldn't have read that as a significant like end times, like what is God doing? This is, these are huge events. So the early church primarily read Revelation 6 through 19 as happening in their own day. The seals are being unleashed now. Uh, the trumpets, which is, is this coming Sunday, that's happening um, now. So that's the preterist view, which is, is these things are past. And then the last three views are all kind of variations of, of, of reading Revelation primarily with a present lens, a present day lens. The first is what Gorman calls theopoetic. So the Greek word for uh, God is the, uh, theos, theo, so uh, sort of God poetic, theopoetic. And they actually warn against trying to decode the text with one-for-one, you know, uh, correspondence. So a, a theopoetic reader of Revelation would hear how Lindsay say, these locusts are helicopters, and they'd be like, dude, you're, you're off your rocker, man. That's not, those are, that is not what that's referring to. Um, so this would be uh, authors like or the ancient Christian father Origen, Augustine read the text this way. And uh, Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a book called Reverse Thunder, which is this is how he approached the book of Revelation um, in that book. And what they would say is, is primarily don't focus on the historical study of how these events might relate to history. But instead, get caught up in the wonder of the poem and the images and the world created by Revelation. Because that expresses something true about God and how you and I are to live in the end time. Um, so it's less about, like, are the locusts helicopters, or are they real locusts? Or what, they would say that, that doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is this, this is creating a world in which you and I are to enter into um, to experience God in worship such that we live faithfully for the end time. So they wouldn't say, you know, there's no history involved in Revelation. They would just say that's not primarily what Revelation is about. Um, theopoetic. So that's, that's one way of, take, of taking a present focus on the text. Four is is theopolitical. 
Um, and I've already tipped my hand a little bit about how I see Revelation in this respect. But Revelation is ultimately a document of comfort uh, to God's people, but also protests against the world's political systems in light of the coming kingdom of Christ. Um, so Re- Revelation is political resistance literature, and not just against Rome, but against uh, really any superpower that would embody the practices of the Roman Empire, which we'll be getting into more. That's where the, the end of Revelation is, when it begins uh, to speak very frankly about God's vision of what the Roman Empire was. So theopolitical, right? Christians were living in a hostile empire that was oppressing them. And so this is political res- resistance literature uh, that's to comfort God's people, to have them live faithfully in protest against the world's political systems. Uh, fifth is uh, pastoral prophetic, a pastoral prophetic reading of Revelation. So ultimately, Revelation is a document of Christian formation designed to, to keep Christians faithful in the end times uh, because especially the church is going to face oppression and opposition. Um, so the primary point of, of Revelation is written to the church, and, and the church in every day should read it as, as how to navigate through the world in times of oppression and opposition. Um, so I'll, I'll tip my hand and I'll, I'll open up for questions because obviously there's like centuries of writing to each of those. And let me just say, they're depending on uh, which, which place or which, which spot you land in, you have a text that's, that pretty clearly teaches that view. Right, it's pretty. I could get up here and defend any one of those those five views pretty pretty uh, easily because there's there's passages that feel like Revelation six or nineteen is entirely in the future. Uh, there are moments that that's pretty powerful when you start comparing these events, what's written in Revelation, to what happens at the fall of Jerusalem. It's really compelling. Um, and I think uh, the 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 last the last three views, which ultimately is is, is my take on Revelation, which is more a presentist view. Um, that combine these three elements of theopoetic, theopolitical, and pastoral prophetic, Revelation creates a world in which you and I are to live uh, caught by the wonder of God um, in, in seeing reality as it fully is because we're to resist the world systems which almost, almost never uh, line up, certainly not fully with the kingdom of God, but also ultimately any world system you can point to real Areas of injustice and oppression against the poor, the the, the weak, the um, the foreigner, almost anywhere. There is no world system you can't do that. Um, and it's pastoral prophetic. It's designed ultimately to form us into the way of Jesus, so that we don't uh, line up with the political kingdoms of the world you and I live in, but instead we live up with the kingdom of Christ. We bear witness to it, um, and we stay faithful to it while we face enormous pressure to abandon this kingdom for all the other kingdoms offered to us. So that my reading would lean more, you know, three through five. And what I'm going to do for the rest of tonight after we, we have some space for questions is to push into uh, Revelation 6 and 7, why I think uh, the present view is the most compelling um, view. But like I said, uh, hear that very open-handedly. Uh, I could easily defend any of those views because Revelation is really tough to understand. And so I, I feel like Christians should be pretty open-handed when it comes to how we adopt one of these views um, and that we're really kind to people in other views because if you study Revelation, you're going to see why people land in different spots. So that's really broad. That's really intense. Um, in terms of like this, there's a lot of like really deep biblical interpretation stuff happening here. And the, what's, what's tough 
is once you've made that decision, which I've made it because I've read through the book multiple times, but once you've made that decision, it just, it, it determines how you read all, everything from this point forward, right? It's like you can't kind of pick and choose. Well, I'll go future here and I'll go, I, this makes more sense here. You just can't because it, it, the book begins to break down, which is what makes it so difficult. So anyway, thoughts, uh, questions as I offer my, my humble best. Summary of, of Christian positions as well as beginning to tip my hand before I go fully into the defense of, of why I think the way I do about Revelation and Revelation 6 and 7. Questions? Thoughts? Okay. Yeah, he would say that's another uh, another axis that you could that that you can you're going to be in between whether you take a present, future, or past view. Yeah, I would probably lean more to Texas lens. Um, and be pretty slow to name one-to-one correspondence for things unless the evidence is, is really overwhelming. And that's why, like, there's people who would say, you can't ever do that, which I wouldn't say that. Um, and then there's other people who would say, everything's a code, right? You should, so you're going you're gonna to land somewhere on the spectrum um, of those. And my own way to, to, to process, like, how you land is, I think, any, any, any symbol or image we're given in Revelation, first question we should ask, is that in the Hebrew Bible somewhere? Because um, it probably is. And, and that's going to determine the meaning of that symbol first. Second is, does this correspond to something in Rome, first century? Because uh, remember, this is a letter to the churches. I think most of what's in here should have direct reference uh, to the people who originally read it. It's hard for me to imagine God would write. This is one of the reasons why I don't take the futurist view. Um, it's hard for me to imagine God would write a book that uh, 80% of it was irrelevant to the people who, um, and, and, and futurists wouldn't say that. Um, but I, I would say that I think that's a problem because if, if, if none of this is happening and none of this even you could really understand, and certainly this would be my pushback against the left behind vision of Revelation, if all of these things are codes that you can't really know until you get to the end times, um, then the people who re- originally read the book had no idea what it was, right? If locusts are helicopters, and you know, the, the left behind would have a hundred other examples of that. If they're helicopters, then the first century Christians had no idea what they were reading. I mean, that's ultimately what the implication of that. Um, is. So depending on where you, you land, you're going to go a different place between code and, and lens. Um, so anyway, three questions. First is uh, Hebrew Bible. Second is uh, Rome, first century. And then third is, is there something in today that, that really corresponds with this, that informs what I'm reading in Revelation? So I would be someone who is totally comfortable with naming some things we see even today as, as referenced in Revelation, just having first processed them through the, the grid of the, the Old Testament in first century Rome, and here's, here's my own opinion is, once you've done that, there are very few symbols left that, that I don't think have reference either to the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, or to first century Rome. Um, most are coming straight out of that context, which helps as we, we interpret it. I, it helps sometimes, sometimes it makes it more difficult, but yeah, good question. Other, other thoughts, questions? Yeah, no, I'd actually, I'd agree with that. Yeah, if if I made it sound like you've got to make one, I think you have to. I think one becomes primary in the sense of so like, if I if I name the six the the seven seals as, as 
already beginning to have been fulfilled, then that I necessarily am out of the futurist camp at that point because they would say, no, 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 that's, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but when you get to seal five, six, seven, that's a much blurrier picture. And even how seals one through four work out, there is some space open for future. So even what's interesting is, um, so my guess is I've disappointed a lot of you because you've read Left Behind. That's primarily how you've read Revelation because that's, that's the dominant American view. And what's interesting is uh, while most people who read a futurist reading are moving, at least theologians, there are very few theologians who actually hold that view. That's a more popular level view. Most theologians who hold the futurist view are actually like coming more towards the presentist side. And most presentists, my position, are moving more towards the futurist side where there is a lot of interplay between the two. Um, and so I, I would certainly say that's, that's true for me. It's, it's, it's messier, um, certainly, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it depends on the chapter, depends on the book and the moment. And even when you think you know, it's like, well, I don't know if this is future or, or past, and so that's why I'll try to hold those things open-handedly when it comes to timing in particular. So but that's a great question, and that's, that's where the tension is, is it's, it's not exclusively one. Revelation goes all over the place, though, which makes it, makes it difficult. Steve? Totally. <laughs> totally agree, and that would be the futurist pushback to my to what I'm what I'm saying. It's it's right, and and I would say the way I read it, even as someone who would lean more present, it's I'm doing that same thing, right? I'm saying this is clearly addressing Rome. And then if you begin to apply it some of, to the, some of the world superpowers in our day, you absolutely, I mean, this Sunday I'll talk a little bit about China and how China, what's happening in China parallels what's, what's happening in Revelation 11. And I think that's a part of what actually gives power to the present position because it's, it's true now. And it may, find, and even I, I think one open question, both for the pre people who are futurists and people in my position is, will there be one final um, reenactment of all these things? That is very much what the future is. I'm very open to that. It's not. Yep, and it, it, it does, any reading of Revelation is going to have all three. <clears throat> I think you have to make, there are moments when you can't do that, though, I think is, is what I would say. There's moments when, you know, so what, where we'll go as we start this is the, the two chapters Joseph preached on, Revelation 4 and 5, where the land, this, this, this worship moment in the throne, who's worthy to open the, uh, open the, you know, break the seals, open the scroll, when did that happen? It either ha has already happened. Um, or it hasn't happened yet, and you can't answer, like, there's no, there's no, like, all three there. You have to decide, did Reve has Revelation 4, 4 and 5 already happened, which then begins to inform, okay, the seals have already been opened. We're living in the midst of seals 1 through 4, so, you know, it's, so you're right, all, any good Revelation reading is going to have, is going to deal in all three of those categories, but there are moments when you have to kind of lean into one.
hopefully those will become multiple. Yeah, those are great questions. So I don't hear me as overselling what, like, you got you to choose one of the three. It's more, they're going to be moments when you have to choose one of the three. Um, and then you're going to choose it, and you're going to get down another chapter and be like, I don't know if I made the right decision. <laughs> Thoughts, questions, before I start to give you a little bit of why I read Revelation the way I do. All right, let's, get, let's go into Revelation. Uh, yeah, do it. I'm not sure I have either. So, uh, well, that even leads into, that actually leads well into the three most common mistakes in reading Revelation, which I want to get before I go into Revelation 6, because I'll, I'll answer your question in a second. So, now that I've kind of laid the, the groundwork a little bit, and th this will get to, to what you're saying, three common mistakes made in, in reading Revelation, and I've already spilled into them, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. One is failing to take Revelation seriously as a product of and a message to its own time. Um, so, again, remember, Revelation 1, it's, it's, it's three things. It's an apocalyptic work, it's a prophetic work, and it's a letter to the churches. And two of those categories are, are primarily present in terms of how they, they, um, they work. So we, we typically, when we think prophecy, we think predicting the future. It's actually not most of Hebrew pro prophetic work. Uh, the Hebrew prophets, what they did was they declared, thus says the Lord, to the present moment. It was God saying, okay, this is what you should think, right? Thus says the Lord. Now, there is predictive prophecy in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, no doubt. But prophecy typically is God pronouncing his opinion on what's happening in the world um, around. And then the letter, this is a real letter to seven real churches. And so we, we don't want to lose that. And so as we read the text, read through Revelation, we should always be asking, how might the original hearers of Revelation have understood this? a really crucial question and that's a question actually for any biblical interpretation the people who were this was actually written for how would they have heard what's been written uh, mistake two is postulating contemporary fulfillment of symbols and visions based on the assumption that prophecy and history must be culminating in the present and here's what, what i don't mean by that is you don't see things in Revel like never see something in revelation as potentially referring to something in the the, the present day it's not a never. Um, it's more uh, we can kind of overemphasize our own moment, our own time. And you see this throughout history, how Christians have treated Revelation. Oh, it's like this is, this is the beast. We know this is what the mark of the beast is. And they were wrong in, in all cases. Um, and so I think anytime we try to make a correlation, we should hold it very open-handedly. While, again, like working our answers through those questions. Is this image or symbol in the Hebrew Bible? Is this image or symbol... Uh, from the first century in Rome, um, so we should be careful. We should be careful about those correlations. And then, thirdly, and this goes uh, this goes a little bit to what Chase um, had to say. 
<coughs> actually combining both of these, uh, becoming preoccupied with the questions about the meaning of certain unknowable or less significant aspects of the book. Um, so if it was really important for us to know who the beast is, John would have told us. If it was really significant to make clear when, how, the specifics of Armageddon, he would have told us. Because there are symbols and images he does tell us directly. This is what this means. This is what this, this is what this means. And a lot of what I think what happens with Revelation is we begin to lose the forest for the trees, which is we, get, we, we dwell into one uh, symbol, image, and overplay actually its, its own importance in the book. Um, or we miss the way the symbol is used um, throughout the book, and we focus in on one use in particular. So, for example, a thousand years in, in Revelation 20, or numbers in general, right? When we think prophecy, we often think predictive, and we think uh, very, uh, very explicit, right? It's, it's well, it's, you know, it's going to be exactly a thousand years. Um, that's not how numbers work in, in apocalyptic literature. They're, ne- they're not precise. Um, they're meant to all, they're always round. Uh, they're always typically in, uh, you know, in tens, in sevens, in fours, um, or or there's they, they're cubed in the way that they work, which means we're probably not getting uh, something literal, uh, but something um, that is is figurative. And even I would I would give one of the most astounding prophecies in in the Hebrew Bible was basically the 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 prophet Jeremiah predicted that Israel would be in exile 70 years um, in, uh, in exile in, in Babylon. It was actually about 67 years. So he's like, are we going to, like, how are we going to do that? Like, is he going to, well, that, it failed because it was three years short. And Daniel begins to pray for the return of the exiles at year 66. Um, so some of the, like, it's, it's, not, it's not meant to be um, precise. And that's where I would say, that's a part of my own pushback on the futuristic view um, is they take numbers in ways that apocalyptic and, uh, and prophetic works in the Hebrew Bible um, don't take numbers. They're much more of a figurative, um, not that they at times can't correspond to some reality. I think I, I'd be very hesitant to say, to say that. But I would, I would say when any, whenever you have a number in Revelation, it's almost never corresponding to, the, to a direct reality that that number equals. Um, and I'll give some examples through, through the book. And that's why, again, I think we have to take each image by itself and ask, well, why is it a thousand years? Um, is, it, is it because it's actually going to be a thousand, literal thousand years, or is it is there something else going on there? But that's Revelation 20, and that's like the text where everyone disagrees on, so I'm not going to start there. Uh, instead, I'm going to go where maybe it's a little bit easier, which is Revelation 6, uh, 6 through 8. And actually, where I want to start, this is going to seem like totally out of left field, but this is really important in my own reading of Revelation which is if you were to a- answer the question, what is the content of the gospel, what would you tell me? If someone says, hey, I, I might believe in Jesus. What do I have to believe? What's the gospel? What would you say? What would be the content of the gospel? And I promise whatever you're thinking is probably right. Right? And if you're like, this feels like a trick question. <laughs> I think it is kind of a trick question, but not not because you're going to say something wrong. You're all thinking the right thing. So what what's the content of the gospel? Yeah, Jesus is the only way to have your sins forgiven. Yeah, it's good. 
And it do, yeah, it doesn't have to, you don't have to get the whole gospel in just three words. Um, that's really hard. But just the, the, big, the big themes of the gospel, what are they? Atonement for sin through, through Christ. Yeah, to reconcile us back to him. Good. Resurrection. He rose from the dead. Yeah. Conquered death itself. the way Jesus began his ministry, sent as you know, God is man. And then announcement of I pulled the maneuver of like you can steal this whole question. And it's a terrible teaching strategy, so I apologize. Um, but the reason why I asked it is because when you read through the early Christian preaching of the gospel in Acts, there's one element that our own kind of modern American culture almost never includes but was central to the early church. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example. So if you have a Bible, turn it to Acts 2. This is the first sermon uh, that Peter preached right after the Spirit came and they spoke in tongues and preached the gospel. This is how Peter explained that event. And, and what I can tell you is this is, you multiply this out, this is the way the gospel is talked about. Um, so Acts 2, I'm going to read verses 29 through 32. Uh, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn in, with, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Now, that's typical, if you ask an American what the gospel is, you guys got all that. This is the part uh, that I think we miss. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here's the part of the gospel, I think, we off, that's actually central through Acts and often not mentioned in our, our context, which is Jesus didn't just die, was buried, and was raised to new life. And that's the end of the story. Um, the early preachers never stopped the story there. Um, there may be one or two exceptions to that in Acts. But they always continued it to the fact that he was seated at the right hand of God. So therefore now Jesus is the one reigning over history now. Right, so it's, it's, this has happened. The gospel didn't stop at Jesus being raised from the dead, and he's somewhere halfway between earth and heaven, and he's just slowly moving up there until the world ends. And, and why that's important is because then when you get to Revelation 4 and 5, and, and the question comes out, who's, who is worthy to take uh, the scroll? Who's worthy to open the seals? The answer given is the lamb that was slain, the, the lion of the tribe um, of Judah, which is, is, is my, uh, the way I would read that is, is Jesus is enthroned now. Revelation 4 and 5 has already happened. That's how the gospel was understood by the early Christian preachers. It's not that Jesus is waiting to be enthroned as king. He is enthroned as king now. 
which means he's worthy to, he's worthy to take the scroll. That's already happened. We're not waiting for a future coronation of Jesus. He has been coronated. And the question isn't, uh, is Jesus king? The question is, when, uh, when does he finish his, his, his reign over the rest of the world in, in that he ends the rebellion against the ways of God and comes finally and fully? So my own reading of Revelation starts with how the gospel is preached in Acts, which is that Jesus is king reigning. He's the ruler of the kings on, the, on earth right now. And that Revelation 4 and 5 moment is not a future moment that begins the end times. It's already happened through the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God. So I'd encourage you, when you, uh, you know, go through, read through Acts, read the preaching, and how central the ascension and Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father was to the early Christians. Um, so that's where, that's where I began. But now let's, we're going to go into Revelation 6, the, the, seven, um, the seven seals. Um, so taking the three time uh, frames, this is, this is where everyone breaks into their own camps. Because you have to make a decision. Have the seals been begun to be opened? Have they already been opened? Or uh, have they not yet been opened? So a, a view uh, more past uh, t- tense would say, well, one through five is all past. Um, and then six, which is clearly the final judgment, most would say that's still future because it's final judgment. But most of, of the seals, have ar- that's already happened. We shouldn't read those verses and apply those to our present day. Futurists would say that hasn't happened yet, right? It's the, we have to wait, and, and when the seals begin to be opened, that's when the end times, end times begin. Um, presentists, like my own, my own position, is we're in the midst of seals one through five right now. We're living in that time of the already not yet uh, kingdom of, of Jesus. He's begun to open the, the scroll, but he's not completed um, the work. Um, and so I, I think what's helpful is actually just to get in and read it. So let's go to Revelation chapter 6. And I'll, what I'll do is I'll kind of, I'll kind of lay out why, uh, why I'm, I've already given you one reason for the way the gospel is understood in Acts and how that I think applies to Revelation but Revelation uh, 6, 1 through 8, the four scrolls. Um, would someone, uh, someone be willing to read those, those for us? Someone with a loud mouth. Keith, go for it. Yep, 6, 1 through 8. Uh, sorry, we're in Revelation. Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Well, yeah, that's, that's a good story, too.
Okay, so we just read a lot of things that probably made no sense, and that's, that's okay. So the, the first question, again, in my, and I, I think whatever your view of Revelation is, the first question shouldn't be, well, so the, I, I heard plagues. Is that COVID? Like, are we living in this, like, is that, is it happening right now? Maybe, I don't, like, I don't know. <clears throat> but that shouldn't be our first question. Our first question should be, okay, there's four horsemen. Where is the, where are the four horsemen coming from? And, and, and what I would even say is, by, the Revelation is, and the, the guys from the Bible Project use this language, and I think this is really helpful for Revelation. Revelation is meditation literature, which means you're not meant to read it once. You're meant to read it multiple times, again and again and again, so that as you read it, you ask questions, and as you, as you read through the book, those questions get, get answered. But the first thing we should be asking in verses 1 through 8 is, okay, what, why, four, why four horsemen? And if, if you know, uh, if you know your, your Hebrew Bible, that, that's from Zechariah 6. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's, let's go there um, to Zechariah 6 uh, for a minute. And uh, I'll read this, Zechariah 6, verses 1 through 8. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. The mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. The dappled ones go to the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. All right, so does that, does that clear everything up um, for you, right? But th this is why it's meditation learning. So now, to understand Revelation 6, you've got to go meditate and understand Zechariah 6. And that's why, like, again, my own reading is what's more important before you read uh, the worldwide news to understand Revelation 6, you should, uh, you've got to go back to Zechariah 6 and meditate on Zechariah 6. And when you do, you see there's, there's a couple of main things happening in Zechariah 6. And I'm not going to go into the full context because we don't have time. But first is, is God's absolute sovereignty over the earth. No, that's not questioned, right? The, the chariots are directed by God. They stand before God. God is sovereign over the earth. But secondly, despite his sovereignty, what's happening in the context of Zechariah is God's people are in, um, are in exile. And the reason they're in exile is because they were disobedient to God. So what God does in, uh, in the Old Testament is he sends foreign nations to go and be his, his instrument of judgment against Israel. But what's happened is those instruments of, ju of judgment have overplayed their hand. They've become oppressors. They didn't just mete out God's justice or judgment. They've actually become oppressors and have crossed, uh, crossed boundaries. And so now the, what the four horse, horsemen are doing here in Zechariah 7 or 6 is they are going out throughout the earth to, be, to work on God's behalf 
to pull back the injustice that's happening against God's people and oppressors. So in particular, when, you, when, you, uh, when the mention of the, behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Well, the north country um, would be re- a reference to, to Babylon, which is where uh, Israel is in exile, and God is turning his sights to respond to, to the Babylonians because of their injustice. Now, I'm not pretending like that solves all the problems of Seals 1 before. It doesn't. In fact, if anything, it should raise way more questions. But the themes in both places are the same. God's people are suffering. Um, God is in some ways the, the source of that suffering. And God has sent out forces into the world to begin to, to deal with the suffering and the evil that's happening in, um, in the world. The key thing that I, I just want you to take from that is the first, the first response of trying to understand the four horsemen is, Ze- is Zechariah. Because John's referencing that story. He's pulling that image. Now, it could be at times he's just pulling an image and there's nothing else behind it. That's a, he, he, he does that at times. Or at sometimes the story is meant to inform um, the presence. It depends on the symbol. It depends on where you go, which is why it's, it's meditation that you're for. Go meditate on Zechariah 6 while you're meditating on Revelation 6. Do those things um, together. So in my own, my own reading then, um, so a lot of which I went into in detail on, on Sunday, but is we, we are living in the time of seals one through, uh, one through four, and really one through five. Um, and and here's, here's what I would say. If, if you're more the futurist view, I'm very open to the idea there will be a final culmination of this. this uh, um, the, the phrase used that's pretty popular, both among people who are in my camp, which is more the present view, and the futurist view is, is what's called recapitulation, which is, you, what you're going to get in history is sort of a cycle of these four seals and the trumpets, which come next. You're going to get these cycles, which are all, a futurist would say, are all going to culminate in a final cycle of, of seven seals, which I'm, I'm, re- I'm entirely open to. Um, or this is the reality of the church in the time between the first and the second coming of Christ, which is primarily how I read it. Revelation is a book to address the entirety of the time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, which is why I can live in some like past, you know, moment. Like I think that's a reference to the past. Why I think others are present and also at times, well, Christ hasn't returned yet. So there's still some future stuff um, here as, as well. But so, so the way I take seals one through four, we're living really seals one through five. We're living in the midst of that, but seals one through four, the four horsemen, um, seal five is is really where I think the application were to um, were to call out for vindication for the suffering of God's people throughout the world. We're to, we're to acknowledge that the place of God's people in this world in the kingdoms of men is often to be to suffer and to be oppressed. And our place, our our first posture in response to that is prayer. So that, that's seal five. Then seal six, and this is where I'd lean into the future. Seal six is clearly a reference to the final judgment. But I'm going to save, basically the language there is clearly, is clearly reference to the creation's undone and God's re- renewing, remaking it. Um, but I'm not going to go into to seal six. I'm going to wait for the, the more final judgment to, to work through some of that, that language. But thoughts or questions on Revelation six before I get to, to Revelation seven? It's all. So here, Revelation ultimately sets up, 
This goes into next week, into Sunday. A messy, a war between the Messiah and his people and the world. And so that war gets played out in a number of different. So first century, that was between Rome and God's people. Right now, it's happening between China and God's people, right? A world power, superpower, doing battle against the people of, um, of God. And so that's why I could see, I see those ones before. I see both just referencing what the first century church was engaging, as well as what our Christian brothers and sisters in Iran, in China. And when we get here eventually, I would say even you and I are participating in this in our own culture. Because there is no kingdom that is the kingdom of God, we are, as Christians, necessarily um, at war with every culture we live in because it's not the kingdom of God. And there's elements of the culture and kingdom in which we live in that are openly hostile to the ways of the kingdom of, of God, which is, you know, a rambunctious way of, of talking because there's tendencies in some cultures to align our own political kingdoms with the kingdom of God, right? That's happened repeatedly throughout history. Actually, that's, that's what happened to Rome, right, is at the end of the Christian really conquering Rome, Constantine, uh, whatever his faith profession was, whether it was genuine or, or, or not, saw a political opportunity to name himself as a Christian and to grab Christians as his own political justification. And he did that, and the church went from being a, a suffering minority that served the poor and the oppressed and was a, an alternative community to then being the community of power and started wars, um, became violent in the ways they, they went about the universe. And many, many people would say that's when uh, the church began to lose its way um, politically. And so because we're always in a messianic war against the kingdoms on earth, there's a sense in which seals one through four, just, there, it's, just a, it's on cycle, it's on repeat. And so that's why I even say to those of you who are, you know, who are, are futurists, I think there's a lot of space. Um, and for me, a very open question that there could very well be a final kingdom where that war plays itself out in the ways that futurists um, understand. I'm, I think there's no way you could rule that out, um, even if you're, you're more in my view, which is that was true in Rome, it's true in China, it's true in Iran, and also means that that's relevant for all the church through all time, right? If, if, if my reading is correct, it's not just, we're not just waiting for this in some last kingdom and its battle. No, this battle is going on right now. Um, so, uh, yeah, good question. Other thoughts, uh, questions? All right, let's go into Revelation uh, 7. <coughs> Someone uh, read Revelation 7, verses uh, 1 through 4. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Go ahead. So, any thoughts, and Zechariah 6 is pretty dense, any thoughts on how Zechariah 6 helps inform what we just read? So, so, Revelation 6 is the first six seals. Then we get what's clearly a new vision. So, anytime we see after this I saw, or after this, 
Um, that's almost always the same phrase in Greek. We're, we're now shifting vision. We're shifting the experience. So we, we get six deals. We don't get the seventh yet. And now we've shifted into a new vision, um, which is, again, another point where a lot of commentators are going to go in different directions to understand. Some say, no, this is still a part of, of the last vision. Um, but any ways in which you, from what we read in Zechariah 6, it helps inform Revelation 7, those, those four verses, and what this shifting vision is, is doing. It's okay. That's a pretty dense question. So it's okay if you're like, I have no idea what you just asked. It does. Yes. So, and that's the question is, is he telling them to stop or is this before he's told them to stop, to start? Sorry, so I, those of you there on Sunday, I said Revelation 7 hits the rewind button. And the reason why I think it hits the rewind button is exactly what Jake is, is saying. Is you, you hear, now you have the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on sea or, or against any tree. Um, <clears throat> and then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God calling out with a loud voice, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God. So the four winds are clearly a reference to the four horsemen because Zechariah uses those things interchangeably, right? So again, that's why we need Zechariah 6 to help us with Revelation 7. And then more than that, what's, what's clear is before there's any harm done, which the seals have already been released, there's already been harm done, but now we're, before there was any harm done, First, God made clear, do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, until we have sealed the servants of God in their forehead. And I heard the number of sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel. So that's why in my reading I would say, this is pulling us back before the first seal, which you get because of the way Revelation, or Revelation is taking um, Zechariah chapter 6. But a new set of images have now been introduced to us, and they're some of the most, for, uh, most, uh, most famous um, one of which being, uh, there's a seal on the forehead. Uh, does anyone else know when something on the forehead becomes an important moment in the book of Revelation? <laughs> yes. So one of the big, like, what's the mark of the beast? That's one of the big questions of Revelation. Well, before we get to the mark of the beast on the forehead, before, that, before those foreheads are getting addressed, first, the people of God's forehead are getting addressed. And that's important. Again, this is meditation literature. It's meant to be read most, multiple times. So when you get to the mark of the beast on the forehead, you should be thinking, oh, that's, this is in some way connected to the seal of the people of God on their forehead. Now, we don't know what those, things, those connections are, so I don't want to make them um, yet. But what I will, I will build on Kathy's comment, which is uh, I was in Montana for prayer last week, and in Kalispell, there's a guy standing on the corner. I would have taken a picture of him, but I think he would have killed me had I done that. Um, but he had, it was, it's very clear that the vaccine for COVID is the mark of the beast, so do not take it. Which is, listen, if we, if the seal of, of God on our foreheads is not a vaccine, that means the mark of the beast is not a, vac it's not a vaccine, Okay. They're not the same things. Uh, and I know that sounds, uh, you know, a little crazy, but that, that, 
this image and interprets the other, right? So the mark of the beast is not, it's not an, it's, it, whatever it is, it is in correspondence to this, because both are on the forehead. That's really, that, that's important. So let that, let that inform before we get to that, that moment. Lynette, do you have a question? Yeah, it's absolutely the same image. And uh, having the name of your living God, the living God on you, the sea, all of those things are things to go together where mar God marks you as his own. And, and what's important, what I will say about the mark of the beast here is there are some Christians like, hey, man, like you could take it accidentally. So don't like be careful, like what credit card you use because you may, it may be, no, like it's the seal of the living God is something God gives to us that, that spiritually protects us from harm, particularly spiritual harm against the beast. So none of you in this room, if you've been sealed by the living Christ, will one day wake up and accidentally uh, have taken a mark of the beast. You won't. You can't. It's impossible. Um, even though there are things that, that at times do sound like the mark of the beast, the, the Chinese social credit system, right? They're, they're tracking everyone on their phones. And depending on how good, you know, if you're not downloading enough President Xi's sermons right now or his speeches, you get a lower social credit score. You can't travel or you, you may be, uh, because all their uh, society is becoming cashless, you may have your funds frozen. So there's, listen, there's similarities between that and the mark of the beast, but they're not the same thing. Because whatever the mark of the beast on the foreheads of unbelievers is, corresponds with the seal on the forehead of the people um, of God. And I'll, I'll move more into that later. I'm just, I'm sort of, I'm just gently moving into what is a really debated question just by saying, well, the first time anything's on anyone's forehead in the Revelation is it's God's promise to protect us spiritually to the end. That's, now that I might cave on that, if that's. It's a. Uh, I, that's beyond my pay grade. Um, but that's a really important image, right? Um, so, so the seal, that's, that's what we have first. The second image that we're given that is also uh, really tough to understand is the 144,000. Um, and here, here again, to, to put that number through the grid I used earlier, which is, okay, is there any reference to, in the Hebrew Bible? Um, is there any reference in... Uh, Roman culture that would make sense of this. Um, and here's how, so here's how we begin to answer that question. One is, again, numbers in apocalyptic literature are not meant to be taken literally most of the time. There's not literally going to be 144,000 people at some point. What's more important is this is a cubed number, right? So in Hebrew, when something's doubled, that's really important. When it's cubed, it's like pff, important. Like it's mind-blown, like, like in, in one example being in Isaiah 6, uh, you get the only time God is described uh, in the three, the three use of the word holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, the Hebrew there is, is really unique to express the holiness of God. And in a couple of different places in Revelation, we get, we get a cube. Right? So we get 12 tribes, 12,000 people, 144,000. 12 squared, 144,000. Um, it's perfection, it's wholeness, it, it's meant to be... Uh, like God's measured out whatever this group of people are, um, and it's perfect, and he'll protect them. And he knows exactly who they are down to the, the last person. So then the question is, okay, well, who are they? 
Um, futurists would say it's a remnant um, in the coming tribulation of people God will seal and protect. Um, some uh, people in more of the presidents camp would say it's a group of special martyrs that are going to suffer for uh, the name of Jesus and die. And God will protect them even though they will physically lose their life. Um, I already gave you my read of this on Sunday. I think this is a reference to every Christian um, who, who has lived. Um, and so the reason why I think that is because, again, Revelation is, 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 uh, is meditation literature. So the first time you read this, this, sh- this should not make sense to you. And it's okay that it doesn't make sense to you. But when you read through, okay, well, what does it mean? Who's sealed in the rest of the book on their foreheads so that they're protected? And that they're, they're, uh, they're brought into the temple, into the kingdom of God. They're brought into the great multitude, which is next in, in Revelation 7, 17. Um, and there's lots of different, different places you can go uh, to take that. And we, you know, we'll go there throughout the, our next few weeks. But the end of the book gives us the answer to that question. Uh, Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. So whatever's on the forehead of these 144,000 shows up for every Christian at the end of um, Revelation. And listen, I can't build the entire theology of seals, of foreheads um, right now. um, But that's why I read the the 144,000 as every Christian. And and what God's doing, uh, and this is again what I preach on Sunday, but but in 6 and 7, is he is, before the church undergoes tribulation... He protects believers spiritually, not physically. They're going to suffer. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to die. But he's going to protect them spiritually so they get through the trial. Um, okay. Having said that, I think this is one of the toughest images to interpret in the book. And I'm, I'm sort of like, I could wake up tomorrow and totally change my mind. Uh, because there's compelling places to think this is only uh, um, a special remnant at the end times. It's only a reference to martyrs. I think those are compelling positions um, but what compels me is the sealing on the forehead and what that image means for the rest of the book and how it's applied to every Christian. And it's introduced here is why I read it um, as every, every question. Um, the, third, the third thing to think about this image, though, and, and this is the, the, the other reason why I take it as every Christian, is who knows why in the Hebrew Bible people are counted? And do, do you remember why they would take a census? Yeah, in, in, in the New Testament, I'm trying to think if that's true in the, the Old Testament. To organize for, yes, for something. Yes. Who's, is that Lament or Mary Kay? Yeah, is, you count people in the Hebrew Bible to go to war. And that's one of the key themes through the rest of the book is that the church is at war uh, with the beast and his worshipers, which is everyone who's not the church. Now, if you're like thinking, oh, does this, does this class end with like a special weapons cache back there that we're all going to? No, because let me give away the ending if, you, if you're uncomfortable. The way that the, the people of God go to war against the beast and its worshipers is we tell the truth, we witness to the kingdom of God, and we're willing to suffer for it. Those, and that's it. There's not a third. There's not a third one. It's just you, we tell the truth about the kingdom of God, and we expect to suffer, be oppressed, potentially even die <coughs> for it. 
Um, and so uh, Bauckham points out, uh, Richard Bauckham, who I had you read a, a chapter of his, he points out that the image of conquering, it's, it's a, milita a militaristic one and should be read that way. And it's introducing the messianic war, which was a huge theme in, in both apocalyptic literature and in the first century Jewish culture. The idea was the Messiah was going to come and wage war on his enemies and usher in the kingdom of God this way. And Revelation is saying, yes, that's exactly what's happening right now is God is waging war against his enemies uh, in the messianic war through Jesus, who ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we're going to find out what that, that war means, which is victory comes through suffering, which going back to Revelation 4 or 5, that's how Jesus won. Jesus' victory came through his own suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Um, so those themes don't get, get, get picked up yet. Um, that's, that's where we're actually going to be. That's the, that's the sermon for Sunday. Um, but where I want to end, I, I do want to end with uh, Revelation 7, 9 through 17, because here is what you get is uh, a picture of the kingdom of God. So this is what we're to bear witness to. This is what we're to tell the truth about, about what is coming, the kingdom of God that is, is breaking in. Um, and so what I want you to do is, as, as we read this, to think through um, what is it that we're announcing? Uh, what, what is the truth we are telling to the world? Um, I'll, I'll read this for us, but as, 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 as I'm reading it, think through that question. What, what kingdom are we announcing? After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? Where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, serve him night and day in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, nor, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what, if you're preaching the kingdom of God to people, what are you telling them? is true of the kingdom of, of God. Yeah. Yep. Yes, worship in the presence of God. I was on a call today. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, hard not to see in the next few years the, the hostility between the U.S. and China increasing, and yet I'm talking to fellow believers in China, and we have more solidarity one another than we do to our own countries because um, here we are in, in Christ. Yeah, other thoughts?
will be her shepherd. But I mean, the, the key themes mentioned are an end to ethnic and political division, right? No more countries going to war against one another, but living in community with one another. Uh, there's, no more, uh, there's no more poverty, no more hunger, thirst. Um, it's a world uh, that has now moved from not having the presence of God or you know, filled with abuse from the sorcerers to now being the presence of God, the temple, everyone worshiping. And everything suffering, uh, everything that causes suffering and brokenness uh, is now gone. And here's the thing, it's important as we close our time for tonight. All of these things in scripture, um, suffering, evil, uh, poverty, um, ethnic, cultural division, war, all of those things in scripture have demonic origins and demonic powers underneath them, driving them. Um, which is the war that we're going to war against, right? So that's why I want to name those things, is what we're, what we're saying is we're, we're warring with the Messianic lamb to end ethnic, political, warring and division, to ending poverty, to ending a world without the presence of God, to ending a world of suffering and, and brokenness. That's the fight we're in. Um, and that's where Revelation is going to go. From here, which is why I like the way Michael Gorman defines Revelation. Because Revelation is describing Christians who are to participate in uncivil worship as we follow the Lamb out of Babylon and into the heavens and new earth. Well, I'll unpack more what that means, but Revelation 7 announces a w the war is on and the church is to engage. And again, I hope that the military image has been abused by the church in the past, but what it's going to mean in Revelation is going to be pretty sobering, actually, um, for us. Uh, so with that, let me pray, and then uh, and then head out for, we're in like the, this is the hardest part of the book. Revelation 6 through like, I think 11 is the toughest. And then it gets a little bit, a lot more common ground probably from this point forward, but let me pray. God, as I think about um, just this book and what it calls us to be and do and the, the reality it depicts for us, God, um, there's so much happening in this world we don't see. I pray you'd, you'd just, you'd reveal um, before our eyes, who you are and who you're calling us to be in, in our own time of really just unique, unique tensions, unique pressure points. God, we just want to faithfully follow the lamb wherever he leads. And so help us, power us to do that by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.